cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Look ahead. Imagine more. Gain insight for your industry with forward-thinking advice from the professionals at Cone Resnick. Is your business ready to break through? Find out more at ConeResnick.com slash Breakthrough. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. I have a really interesting and special guest, an unusual guest this week. His name is Lawrence Juber. Uh, You may know him if you are a Beatles fan or a Paul McCartney and Wings fan. He was lead guitarist for Wings in the late 70s and 80s. But he is really uh, a musicologist and and best known amongst a musical audience for the work he's done uh, on guitar. He he is a fingerboard guitarist, uh, really a a master prodigy. I don't know what else you you can say about him. Uh, a brilliant technical player. Lots and lots of other guitarists have a universe of respect for him. And when you hear some of the things he plays. You'll understand why he he has. I don't even want to say dabbled. He has opened up a a, a new world uh, of alternative tunings, and that allows him to do some really fascinating things with the guitar, including uh, playing the the melody, the lead, and the vocals at the same time. And you'll hear him at the end of the show play two or three songs. As well, most of the interview, he had the guitar on his lap, and he would demonstrate different things as he was speaking. If you are at all interested in classical music, rock and pop, or the Beatles, or if you're interested in the financial aspects of being a musician in the modern era, I think you're going to find this to be uh, quite a treat. It was really delightful having him. He's a, a charming, dry-witted Brit, and and that very much comes across. So without any further ado, my conversation with Lawrence Juber. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. We're going to try something a little different today. My special guest is not from the world of finance, but from the world of music. His name is Lawrence Juber, and let me just give you a few moments on who he is. Born and raised in London. He began studying the guitar at age 13 or earlier, began earning money playing the guitar at that age. Upon graduation from university, he immediately began work as a session guitarist. His first project was with the producer George Martin. He was tapped to join Paul McCartney in his then band Wings in 1978 as their lead guitarist for their world tour. He has been a studio musician on thousands of sessions, recorded countless television theme shows, film soundtracks. You may have heard his lead in the James Bond movie theme, The Spy Who Loved Me. It's the James Bond theme in the movie, The Spy Who Loved Me. Voted Guitarist of the Year by Fingerstar Guitar Magazine, named one of the top acoustic players of all time by Acoustic Guitar Mag. He has recorded 23 solo albums since 1982, with a new album coming out in the not-too-distant future. Many of those albums were released to critical acclaim, and he has won two Grammys. No less than a guitarist than Pete Townsend has called our guest a master of guitar. Lawrence Juber, welcome to Bloomberg. Well, thank you very much. Who is this guy, anyway? Who is this guy? So I was describing you to somebody, Uh and... 
the interesting thing is I said, here's a guy who has played pretty much with everybody in the world of rock and roll, and he could walk down the street and nobody's going to recognize him. He's really incognito. Well, you know, musicians, a lot of musicians are incognito. Yes. Because unless you pursue the star track, right. you inevitably kind of fall slightly out of the limelight. And that suits me just fine because my ambition from the time I started playing when I was 11. Did you grow up in a musical household? No, not at So all. you're the first musician? I, until recently, I thought I was the only musician in my family. Not I, counting your daughter, who I know well, writes yeah, songs. Well, yeah, that's different. Yeah, that, so, that, we, we'll get to that. But I discovered through some family tree research a year or so ago that I actually have a third cousin once removed who's a <laughs> sax player in England. So not exactly um, immediate family. Uh, no, but I think that what it is is... There were a lot of tailors in my family, and as the generations went on, some of them got into haute couture. But my dad really was an apprentice tailor. And I think that for me, understanding music and appreciating music and the guitar came out of pattern recognition, the, the patterns of music, the mm -hmm. shapes of musical phrases, the shapes of chords on the fingerboard, and the shape of, of all of that, I think was, was something that kind of underpinned my, my musicianship. So my next question was going to be who were your early musical influences, but you're going to tell me it was Weavers and, and Taylors, not what I'm expecting. <laughs> no, well, no, That's the, a good <coughs> album name, by the way, I, Weavers, Weavers and, and Taylors. Weavers and Taylors, there yeah. you go. I, I mean, I'm just talking in terms of the neurological mm -hmm. side of it. The, the inspiration was, I mean, you know, I, I got into listening to music probably, you know, slightly pre-teens. Mm -hmm. And... You know, 1963 in particular in England was this incredible year because there was this kind of swell of Beatlemania that, right. that started at the beginning of the year with Please Please Me mm -hmm. and then went through Please Please Me, From Me to You, She Loves You, and I Want to Hold Your Hand. As the, you know, every three months we would have a new Beatles single. And, and it would blow up. By November it was full-scale Beatlemania, and mm -hmm. my 11th birthday was in November, and the Beatles had been on the Royal Command performance a week before, and my parents realized that I was never going to play saxophone like my dad wanted me to. Right. And it was, guitar had kind of become legit at that point, because the Beatles were becoming so successful. And once I picked it up, I just never put it down. And when did you realize you can earn a living with a guitar? Uh, I was 13, local band leader started bringing me in and playing weddings and bar mitzvahs and stuff. <laughs> Actually paid gigs at paid age gigs, 13. Yeah. yeah, and I was making more money than babysitting or working in the supermarket, the so, local supermarket on and, Saturdays. So. And it's certainly better work than uh, stocking shelves. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I did, you know, I, I, I washed my next door neighbor's car because he had season tickets for Tottenham Hotspur and... I was a soccer fan back then. I was going to say, for an American audience, please. Yeah, please yeah that was one of the London is. soccer teams. And at that time was the, like, the best soccer team in England. So the question that I think everybody who listens to you has to, at one point or another, think is, uh, you're raised on the Beatles and a lot of classic rock and roll. How do you morph towards fingerboard style and acoustic guitar? Well, I started off on acoustic guitar. And remember, 1963 wasn't just Beatlemania. It was also the folk boom. Mm -hmm. So Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, Judy Collins, you know, and we had our English versions of those too. And I was really intrigued by the solo guitar players because the idea of a single performer standing in front of an audience with just an acoustic guitar and often no PA, mm -hmm. you know, but just that self-sufficiency really was appealing to me. There was one particular piece of music called Angie that was written by... An Not English, the Stone song. No, a different Angie that Paul Simon recorded on one of the early Simon and Garfunkel records. Oh, sure. Written by Davy Graham, who was a, a British guitar player. And that involved playing a bass line and also playing the melody at the same time. And because I had kind of dabbled with piano when I was very young, but then the piano went away. It was at my mm -hmm. grandmother's house and they sold it for some reason. But the, the idea of being able to play complete musical statements. Meaning the bass and the, and bass the, and the, the melody and the rhythm and, and everything else led me to really being intrigued by that and by the acoustic guitar. And, and so I got into fingerstyle guitar 
like ragtime and, and uh-huh. you know, you know, stuff like that just really, just really grabbed me. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Lawrence Juber, master of the guitar, probably best known to an American audience for his work as lead guitarist for Paul McCartney and Wings. He has also recorded numerous soundtracks uh, for television and movies, as well as produced 23 original albums. You know, you said you picked up the guitar really the week I Want to Hold Your Hand was released by the Beatles. How influential were they amongst everyone else to you as a musician? The big influence was really that they kind of led the charge of of this kind of musical youth culture that that overtook England. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the 50s were kind of a gray period in, in England. You know, the economy really took a hit after the war, and, mm-hmm. and it was not that great economically. And then the 60s come along, and things really start to kind of pick up. Right. And, and you have this kind of this first wave of the working class baby boomers or, or, you know, that picking up instruments. And it wasn't just the Beatles. It was the Stones and the Animals and the Dave Clark Five and, you know, a little later the Kinks and, and so many English bands that it was remarkable to be growing up at that point in time when there was just this incredible explosion of music. And the Beatles obviously were kind of like the top of the heap because they were the most successful. But they really weren't the only ones. And, and my, my interests went much broader than them very quickly. And it wasn't like I would sit down and, and meticulously work out George Harrison's guitar solos. My consciousness was, oh, that's cool. What's the concept behind it? Mm-hmm. And how do I do that for myself? You're really a bit of a musical historian. and I'm a is musicologist. It, I was yeah. going to say philosopher, yeah. musicologist. I, actually, I'm a guitarologist. Word. Guitarologist. Yeah. So... Let's talk a little bit about the covers you do. We have we have a lot of time to talk about other stuff. Here's my beef with covers in general. Covers being a like copy co- of a, a copy of somebody else's song where exactly. you reinterpret that. So either what what I primarily hear is either a note for note recreation, which makes me sort of shrug and say, "Why bother?" Mm-hmm. or something that's so far afield it's barely recognizable as the original. And what I love about your covers, especially of the Beatles, is that it's immediately recognizable as the song that it is, but it's a very fresh version of it, and you hear nuances and subtleties in the melodies that you might have overlooked in the full four-piece or more band version of it. Well, when you strip it down to the musical elements like that, Sometimes it exposes really interesting kind of inner workings of it. Uh, but, but, but here's the thing. I mean, there are times when my, my interpretations are actually pretty much no accurate, but doing it on the guitar, on a solo guitar, and doing it perhaps, for example, with, you know, in an altered tuning gives it a different texture, not only a, a different... Um, sonic texture, but it, uh, sometimes a different emotional texture. I, I it has a different right. resonance to it. And, and I think what's really important, with, with, especially with Beatle tunes, is because I play it to an audience who know the words. They know the tune. And there's that unsung part of it where the audience is, is kind of internalizing mm-hmm. that their own experience with it. So there's a kind of a, a depth to it that goes beyond simply the guitaristic or simply the musical. But I try to be true. I try to be true to the melody, the spirit of the original, to try and encapsulate it. And sometimes it means changing things because I might find that a particular song has a, a certain angle to it that perhaps wasn't communicated in the way that it was originally recorded. I mean, you know, not every Beatle recording is, is perfect. It's, they're iconic. I mm-hmm. hate to use that word because it's become so overused, but, but it's it, true. But it's appropriate They're for iconic, the but not necessarily entirely perfect for the, the, the fabric of the song. Mm-hmm. You take something like In My Life, you know, and the Beatles version beautiful of it. Song, beautiful song, beautiful melody. It's a great melody. song, and the, their version of it on 
Rubber Soul is very consistent with the style of the album. But that's a song that could be taken so many different ways. And, and Give us has, a, an example. Uh, of course, I'm in the wrong tuning for that. <laughs> I'm actually in, I'm in Dadgad tuning, D-A-D-G-A-D. Mm-hmm. Um, take something like Something, for example. Frank Sinatra covered that tune, mm-hmm. and I was just kind of tossing that out there. But if I'm going to do an arrangement of it, I'm probably, as well as referencing George Harrison's, the Beatles version, I'm going to reference Sinatra's version, mm-hmm. for example, because that gives me a different place to be. Here's another example: uh, Blackbird. Mm-hmm. One now, of my all-time favorite. Now the thing about tunes. Blackbird is that you know all the guitar players learn that, but right. that's the accompaniment. Right. You can't get the melody in, so I had to reconceive it. You know, just doing it differently. Now, and I see what you mean by vertical as opposed to right. horizontal. One of my references for that is Kenny Rankin. Because I used to do gigs with Kenny, and that was one of the tunes that we would play together. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not mm-hmm. just thinking about Paul McCartney singing the song. You know, and Kenny Rankin had this incredible, you know, it sounded like he had a French horn in his throat, this incredible tone. So you know, I'm looking for a way to articulate the melody that has perhaps a little more horn-like quality to it, rather than the kind of the Liverpudlian tinged, you know, McCartneyism. When you released your first Beatles album, LJ Meets the Beatles, in, I want to say 2000? LJ Plays the Beatles. Plays the yeah. Beatles. That was in 2000, uh, yeah. What was the response to that? Very good. I mean, I got lots of great reviews. It got voted one of the top 10 all-time acoustic guitar records in Acoustic Guitar Magazine and sold quite well. I mean, for you know, the, the, the acoustic guitar market is not like a, a huge market. I mean, it's comparable with the classical market you know we're typically like a, a hit classical music album may sell 10,000 copies but I mean, this has a little crossover to pop music it has and crossover and, and it, it you know and it still sells i mean it, i it's, personally it's recommended it to countless people who are beatles fan and they all come back and, say and i get repeat it. business on that because people wear out the cd <laughs> <laughs> i'm barry ritholtz you're listening to masters in business on bloomberg radio my special guest today is lawrence juber He is a guitarist extraordinaire, toured the world with Paul McCartney and Wings, has recorded numerous television and movie soundtracks, including the James Bond theme for The Spy Who Loved Me, and lots and countless other uh, studio work, a two-time Grammy winner. Let's jump into some of the more arcane, technical, and altered tunings that you seem to like. (laughs) Tell us about Dadgad. Dadgad, D-A-D-G-A-D, was supposedly developed by Davy Graham, a British guitar player. Mm-hmm. In um, the 60s, 50s? In the, yeah, in the late 50s, early 60s. It really as a, a drone tuning for him to jam with Moroccan musicians. It's and got that, that got, flavor, sure. That got picked up by Jimmy Page. You know, for example, Cashmere. Cash- You know, it's, it lends itself to that kind of thing. But what I discovered when I started fooling around with it was that it also has great possibilities in terms of arranging pop music. And, and not just current pop music, you know, like rock music, but kind of the great Anglo-American songbook in mm-hmm. general. So, you know, it works... It just works great for all kinds of stuff. So you can do Cole Porter, Jerome Kern, Rogers yeah. and Hart, down the whole list. Yeah, uh, Gershwin. Um, and I, I did an album of um, uh, Harold Arlen tunes, mm-hmm. for example. I've got The World on Six Strings, and, and a number of those tunes I did in 
in that tuning because it just kind of lends itself to some really interesting concepts. I mean, you take something like uh, Crimea River and how the, the tone and the texture sonority of it. gets these voicings that are very almost pianistic in the way that the notes spread together because you have two adjacent scale tones you have a G and an A mm -hmm. which means that you can get these kind of these kind of pianistic kind of sonorities or, or, or more orchestral it's, it's a way of orchestrating on the guitar and then there's also three D strings and two A strings mm -hmm. so octaves Again, kind of a, p a pianistic kind of approach. Um, and then it lets me do, you know, where I can use both hands on the fingerboard and get mm -hmm. these kind of rhythmic effects. I should um, be running film in here. I'm sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry I'm not. Oh, you know, there's plenty of stuff on YouTube. So. <laughs> I, 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 you don't bother trying to take that stuff down? The copyright issue isn't in it? Or is it just promoting? Well, I mean, there's... Um, some of the, interestingly enough, I can't, if, if it's a cover tune mm -hmm. and somebody posts it on YouTube, which they do, you don't have the I, right I, I don't have, have the right to take it down. The copyright owner of the tune has to take it down. You don't have rights in the performance? No, not, not like you do in the, in the copyright. Huh, fascinating. Yeah. I, had, I had no in idea. In fact, you can monetize the performance. <laughs> and how do you, because you go out and play it again. Well, or, or because the, you know, if, if there's advertising attached to it, then there's some monetization involved. But, you know, the fact is that YouTube, as gargantuan as it is, right. and as useful as it is as a promotion, is, is really is a, a kind of a, a nasty beast on the back of intellectual property rights. There, there have been uh, all sorts of articles recently about people who, who've released songs, they've gotten 200 million plays, and they get a check for $87. Well, yeah, it, but it gets a little twisted because the structure, now we're kind of drifting away from guitar tunings, mm -hmm. but the structure of, of royalty payments is that you have the mechanical and the synchronization rights which belong to the writers and the publishers. Uh -huh. But since the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, you also have a performance royalty. Right. Now, for example, a songwriter may have something played on Spotify or Pandora, which will generate a minute royalty of a for the writing side. But the royalty for the performer, which doesn't exist in terrestrial radio, but uh -huh. in the digital medium, the royalty for the performer is substantially higher. So I'm very happy when March rolls around and I see my royalty statements from Sound Exchange for airplay that I get on my Christmas music on Pandora, for example. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Lawrence Juber. He is the two-time Grammy Award-winning guitarist who toured with Paul McCartney and Wings. He's released 23 albums, many of which were to critical acclaim. Let's talk a little bit about the future of music. Recording isn't the moneymaker it used to be. So how do musicians make a living today? It's funny being on a Masters of Business show because I was never a master of business. I just knew I play guitar and I can get paid this much for this gig. So I never really learned, until I worked with McCartney, I never really learned about the music publishing side of things and how the revenue really comes in, not so much from the artist side, but from the writer-publisher side, because that's always been you know, governed by statutory royalty rates. So mm -hmm. it's not like somebody can, well, they do. I mean, record companies will still you know, try and cut you down on the statutory rate, but, but at least you know that there's a, a copyright tribunal that says there's 9.1 cents coming to you for every copy of this particular composition that you write and publish. So I learned a lot from working with Paul because he had become, even by the late 70s, had really become the largest independent music publisher in the world. You, you describe yourself as having a master's in music at McCartney University. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So what did he teach you about, about that business side? In terms uh, really, of, in, in terms of making how you can make money on that side of things too. Own your own, your own songs? Own, own your, your material. And, and 
you know, I, I never considered myself to be a composer until that point where it was like, oh, you mean you don't have to just sit there and wait for a bolt of lightning to come from the heavens that you, you know, it's, it's a job. It's, you know, Paul's very, has this great work ethic as far as he Still goes touring. into the studio. He, well, but not just the touring, but I'm going to write, I'm going to write a tune today, or I'm going to write a tune this morning and another one this afternoon. I mean, it's, you know, it's like what John and Paul did when they sat down and they said, well, once they started making money, it's like, what, what should we write today? Well, let's, let's write a swimming pool. <laughs> you know, let's write a new roof. I mean, it, you know, you because if you have a hit song, I mean, there is, you know, that side of the equation is is a valuable one. More recently, the the performance royalties have have kicked in for for players for performers in a way that never existed in the past, because you as a studio musician, for example, you wouldn't get any kind of back end on radio airplay, but even the artists never got any radio airplay. Oh, really? So, so as a studio musician, you get paid hourly and then you're out. Well, but then there's musicians union. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I mean, I've been in you know the English musicians union. I've been a member of the AFFM since the mid seventies. I have a pension coming from you know all the work, especially in the TV and movie end of things. That, um, that seems to be better structured and, and more lawyered up. Um, to a large extent, yes, but but it's also it's evolved now. I mean, there's there are different funds. There's a secondary payments fund where if you play on a movie score, for example, some tiny portion of the of the growth, the distributor's growth of secondary markets, like if it goes to DVD or mm-hmm. you know that generates payments to musicians and and that's the kind of thing that in the dry spells that's one of the things that musicians can survive on in LA it's a really odd situation because you go and work for a studio as a as a musician and play on a movie score you're an employee but you're walking in there with perhaps with a $200,000 violin right. you know you you have your, you bring your own equipment to the table you you kind of are defined really as an independent contractor right. by anything except the fact that the studio says no you're an employee because you're doing this work for hire and you know and a lot of and us and we get the copyright a lot of us end up with you know with corporations so that you can work that better what's happened is as as the revenue from record sales has dropped off what has kicked in as well as the digital royalty streams for performers, is also all the licensing stuff. It's like my daughter Elsie is a songwriter, and she co-wrote a song called Fireball for Pitbull, which was a hit a mm-hmm. couple of years ago. And that got licensed by a Spanish telecom company for a, for a commercial, for example. And, and so everybody that participated in that, the writers and the publishers, all get you know, some piece of it, plus... The performance, the TV performances generate performance royalties on the writer's side, so that gets processed through BMI or ASCAP or uh-huh. you know, whatever their, their, their membership is. So you have to kind of learn how to be cognizant of the revenue streams. And which, then, which used to be CD sales, and now it sounds it's like composition and performance. Well, except that you know, if you were an artist and not the writer your record royalties were never really that great mm-hmm. because record companies would always find ways to cross-collateralize or right. to, to, you know, to take promotional budgets out of your royalty stream or use controlled composition clauses where, yeah, there may be 14 tracks on your album, but we're only going to pay you for 10 kinds of things. You know, where there are, you know, there's always the lawyer, lawyerly side of that. Not, um, not a very nice business, was it? It never was a nice business. Uh-huh. Um, the, the opportunities are there. And there are some people that have been making actually decent money from YouTube videos, for example. If really? You, if you understand how to monetize that stuff. So the, the, the opportunities are there. But the problem is that you go study music in a conservatory, they don't teach you about how to make a living doing it. You know, one of my pet peeves is that you go study classical guitar, you can come out after three, four years of conservatory and not know how to string a chord sequence together or know how to put repertoire together to play at a wedding, for uh-huh. example, which may be outside of teaching the only real avenue for, for making a living is, is doing those kind of live performances. Because if you're a classical guitar player, there are maybe 15 classical guitar players in the world who can make a living as concert performers. So you know, teaching and and playing local gigs becomes a, a viable way of, of making a living. That's really really quite interesting. So we've heard over the years horrible stories about problems with managers stealing from their clients. Why is it that it always seems that 
big names too. Uh, mm -hmm. People like Billy Joel, and mm -hmm. I think Sting had an issue, and yeah. it's a whole run well, of Billy folks. Joel in particular, because I mean his manager Artie Rip <laughs> had the perfect that, name. <laughs> they, you yeah. know that should have been a warning early on. Yeah, don't, it don't have a business na manager named Rip. Yeah. So um, so why is this always seem to be millions of dollars later we discover? Are, are artists not watching their dollars that closely that well, millions could go out the door before anyone notices anything? How, how can you if you're also full-time writing, recording, touring, doing all of the stuff that goes along with it, interviews, um, photo sessions, everything that, you know, what Joni Mitchell described as the, the star-making machinery behind the popular song. Mm -hmm. It's a full-time job. It was remarkable in Wings that Linda McCartney could be a full-time band member and a mother of four kids. Mm -hmm. You know, it was it was hard for her, and that was really the the final demise of the band was that it just became too much, and the band was always Paul and Linda's band. So it, it's just it's difficult to take care of the creative business and take care of the the business business. I've managed to be able to kind of balance the two, you know, the right brain and the left brain side mm -hmm. of things. But it took me a long time to understand how to do it. And I'm still not that good at it, but I'm getting better. Now I've just started my own record label, which means for my next release, which is a Christmas album, I had to license a certain number of tunes. So I go to Harry Fox's website and I buy licenses. And then I discover that Sleigh Ride, written by Leroy Anderson, isn't handled by the Harry Fox agency. So I had to then contact his family, who then put me in touch with BMG, and I got a you know, mechanical license there. And just those kinds of things that, you know, somebody in an office has to do. Well, I just... Time consuming. Yeah, but, but the technology now has allowed me to be able to stand, and I, I have a standing desk. I don't sit in my right. studio, except when I'm playing guitar. Um, I, I can sit there, stand there, and I can, um, you know, in one screen, I can be taking care of that business. On another screen, I can be doing a guitar arrangement. Or, or writing um, an article for a guitar magazine or something like that. That The ability to multitask, I think, has made it a lot easier. But when it comes to the, the kind of the higher level of things in terms of dealing with finances and, and the fact that wealth can come very quickly and having good wealth management is not anything that a music student is necessarily taught how to do mm -hmm. or, or an aspiring pop star, especially the younger pop stars. I mean, they're, you know, they're lucky when they've got a parent that's kind of keeping oversight. So for people who want to find more of your writings and music, I usually send people to lawrencejuber.com, L-A-U. Yep. Any other place or any other things that they would want to look for or at? Well, that's a good place to start. And you can always just do a search on YouTube and find all kinds of stuff. I mean, I'm constantly finding stuff <laughs> on YouTube. I found, I found on my Wikipedia page, I discovered that a Charles Aznavour album that I played on in Paris in 1977 was number one in France for almost an entire year. I just I read had, that. And I had no idea. I actually read that on but Wikipedia. I found it on my Wikipedia page because you know, I don't, I, you know, I never put that up. Somebody put it up. I mean, I've, I've gone in there and I've kind of tweaked a few things. And that's the problem is not only now do you have to deal with the creative side, you also have to deal with the social network side and the, the, the web, the cyber presence aspect of things too. And I've always pretty much tried to manage myself with all of this because I had a business manager in England and it, you know, it did not end well. And it's like, okay, I, I'm not going down that route again. And I like being hands-on. And, and that's something I learned. Another thing I learned from Paul is how much he really kind of is hands-on with what he does. We've been speaking with Lawrence Juber, guitarist for Paul McCartney. Uh, thank you, LJ, for being so generous with your time. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras where we keep the digital tape rolling and continue chatting about all things financial and music. Be sure and check out my daily column on Bloomberg.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Are you looking to take your business to the next level? The accounting, tax, and advisory professionals from Cone Resnick can guide you. Cone Resnick delivers industry expertise and forward-thinking perspective that can help turn business possibilities into business opportunities. Look ahead. Gain insight. Imagine more. 
Is your business ready to break through? Learn more at ConeResnick.com slash breakthrough. Cone Resnick, accounting, tax, advisory. Lawrence, thank you so much for doing this. This has really been an absolute uh, pleasure, and there's so much stuff to go over. Um, let's jump right into the the crazy copyright stuff that's going on. <laughs> so last year we had, or two years ago, we had the Marvin Gaye yeah, the blurred lines blurred lines yeah. issue. Uh, 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 not too long ago, there was a huge Bloomberg story about the the Stairway to Heaven copyright mm-hmm. issue, and then just recently uh, there was another big copyright. Yeah, the Ed Sheeran photograph one. I mean, it's the same lawyer that did the blurred lines. Oh, really? Yeah. Could, not um, to be confused with the Tom Petty um, issue. Uh, well, yeah, that was, uh, I won't back down, the Sam Smith one, which, which, which was clearly, and Tom Petty agreed. Totally uh, and Or rather, Sam Smith agreed that there were, but see, the thing about it is that there are, there are there's musical substance mm-hmm. that is... It works in such a way that sometimes you can accomplish, you can get to the same place from completely different routes. Right. Um, and you see that, um, for example, I mean, with the Stairway to Heaven case. Right. That is going to trial. Right. You know, Which uh, seem to be based on very similar classical stanzas. Well, exactly. The, um, the spirit song, Taurus, mm-hmm. which uses this... Um, Uses this kind of figuration, mm-hmm. which actually, if you if you break it down musically, actually is the same as um, um, "While My Guitar Gently Weeps." Oh, really? And but, that, but, which came but, first? But it doesn't have the melody. Doesn't have the same melody. Uh-huh. But but neither of them came first. I mean, you can They're go back. Based. But but "Stairway to Heaven." See, "Stairway to Heaven" goes down chromatically. You can do the same thing with my funny da- Valentine. You know, you can do mm-hmm. that same thing. Here you, go. Um, you can do that kind of progression. And when you do a progression like that, here you have an, an A with an octave A above it. You go down to the, C, the G sharp. The harmony note is that. Mm-hmm. Now, now, you're going to find that in a music textbook. You know, that's part of the, the, the substance. That's the public domain aspect of music. You can, there's, a, there's a composition, uh, you can find it on YouTube. There's a, a sonata for guitar and, and violin from 1609 by an Italian composer named Granata, which has... Oh, really? That phrase shows up 30 seconds into it. You know, it's, it's not a unique phrase, by any means, and it's not the same phrase in the in the the spirit song because it's using the same kind of arpeggiation. But that's a guitaristic thing. So you're a little skeptical on the. Oh, I'm skeptical on I'm skeptical on it because okay, so there's a there's a finger picked acoustic guitar and there are recorders on the uh, on the um, the spirit tune and there's recorders on uh-huh. the stairway to heaven and there's a moment where they. There's a, a very similar overlap. sonority. Yeah, there's an overlap. But that's and really brief, isn't it? And Jimmy Page had access uh-huh. because Zeppelin opened for Spirit while they were performing that song. But it doesn't, ri- to me, it, it doesn't rise to the level of copyright infringement when it comes to the actual composition. Mm-hmm. Could it come to that level in regards to the, the, the feel, the sound and feel of the recording? Perhaps. But does does that really apply? But a musicologist could draw the conclusion and sway a, a, a jury. And the reality is that a jury of one's peers, in this particular instance, should really be all rock and roll hall of famers <laughs> in order to be able to to have a, a true you know, a true uh, evaluation of it. it. It just goes to the the fact that intellectual property is probably best not tried in front of a jury like that because the the nuances of it are are beyond easy explanation i I was a little perplexed look i'm a marvin gay fan Mm -hmm. but i also who didn't love the blurred line song that Mm -hmm. was everywhere but i didn't really see that not really let's let's not even let's not even hedge it I did not see one as having ripped off the other. There's a flavor there. Yeah, there's a groove. There's a groove flavor to it. But putting a cowbell on a track is like not that does not 
does not represent a breach of copyright. And I read the musicologist report. You know, I, I studied musicology. Right. I read the musicologist report. You could take Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star and show how there's an alignment of notes that corresponds in such a way that you could perhaps persuade an audience that song A was derived from that, you know. Um, but it was the cowbell that gave it that feel. But the cowbell, but, but the judge but, wouldn't let the jury listen to the record. Oh, really? The judgment was not on the basis of the record. The judgment was on the basis of the composition, mm -hmm. which was not the same thing. So I, I personally thought that that, was, that opened a can of worms. And As we've I, seen. I, have, I haven't yet looked into the Ed Sheeran one. That, that just came up on my radar early this morning, and I'm you know, just busy running around. But I want to look into that because I, I have a suspicion that what's happening is that there's this movement to try and open up that area. But, you know, for example, you take, you take the Bo Diddley feel. Mm -hmm. Well, how many records, how many songs have used like that? George what are you going Michael to give, had a huge hit with that. Yeah, are you going to give Bo Diddley royalties because they took the groove? You know, but, but all music is based on what, what has come before. So then it, I mean, you could look at you know, Ernest Kornfeld, the, um, the great film composer. You listen to some of his music and you put that next to John Williams' Star Wars and you can hear where John Williams got it from. Is it, is it an actual breach of copyright? Well, if you're an aggressive lawyer with, a, with a, an aggressive musicologist, you could possibly make that case. But there has to be a recognition somewhere that there's a line that there are only a certain number of notes, there are only a certain number of grooves, and there's only a certain kind of sonority. Does the sonority of a finger-picked guitar and a, and a recorder really rise to the level of, of a copyright infringement? You, you could say there's a blurred line, but I won't go there. Yeah, That's exactly. a terrible pun. <laughs> so, um, well, but in Blurred Line's case, of course, they opened the, the writers opened the can of worms by, um, by preemptively seeking relief against being sued. Because they knew that they would, they, they, heard, they anticipated that that was going to happen. I, I think that, and again, not to go all Marvin Gaye, but they did hear through the grapevine that yeah. a lawsuit was <laughs> a lawsuit was coming. I mean, that was really supposed to be out there. So once once were, I think the family reached out to them, and that's why they yeah. uh, that's why yeah. they did it preemptively. Yeah, um, write a hit, get a writ is the uh, is oh the really? Motto. Yeah, among songwriters, because it it happens so often. Now, but but the, the, a lot of these lawsuits, I just think I, I, I'm they. I don't know whether they rise to the level of abusive process, but you know when it's they certainly somebody like they're coming close. Yeah, when it's somebody's like you know say, well, you know this this little riff clearly you know was taken from my my song. You know there was the one with Madonna uh, Madonna record where the the judge said you know this horn stab right. was so de minimis that right. that they're not gonna. That doesn't constitute something that needed to be licensed. Is to the, the even the the original recording copyright owners didn't notice for twenty years. <laughs> you know the George Harrison, uh, my my, my sweet, sweet lord. lord. That, that's, you know that's there's a little, a little bit there, but the songs are so different. But and Alan I'm so biased. But Alan Klein was on both sides of the lawsuit. How is that? He oh, owned I mean the publishing on on his so fine the chiffons his so fine, and he was also managing. So George who brought Harrison. who brought that suit? I think he did. <laughs> I don't remember the, the exact details. It's a, it's a nasty business, isn't it? But he was on both sides. Yeah. All right, so I only have you for a limited amount okay. of time, yeah. and I have lots of questions. All right, but I have to I have to play a little bit of let you play a little music. Okay. And this time I'm actually going to remember to record it. I'm retuning. So which way are you going? I'm going back to Dadgad. I, I was in standard tuning just to really. How often are you in standard tuning? Half the time. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I still live there. Right. It's just that um, my my second home is Dagad. <laughs> I thought that was in California. By the way, how do you like being in? Uh, to paraphrase the Sting song, how do you like being an Englishman in California? Oh, I love being in California. The weather, the geography, everything you about know, it's it. It's just, I mean, I, I, my roots have become so you know, entrenched there. I mean. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got two daughters and two grandchildren. 
It's like I couldn't imagine going back to England, not just in terms of the weather, but also just being in America always seems like you can get more things done. There's things always, happen you know, There's always a certain inertia in England. Although, you know, is the difference between... In, I was going to say, is that true in Europe in general? To some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just in Italy and I was shocked to find that half of Italy... Uh, does the siesta like Spain does? Yeah. That that was always a. Uh... All right, so I'm going to record this. Oh, I'm going to put it on video instead of a photo. Okay, I saw her standing there. to applaud fantastic <laughs> so that was great so now, now but here's a, an example that bass line paul got it from a chuck berry record okay i yeah, can but there's see no that. copyright on a bass line like that so how long does it take for you to take that original song and then rearrange it in a uh, to this guitar this tuning it could be it could be 10 minutes it could be three months it just depends on really? the tune yeah so I know, again, another really surprising song is I Am the Walrus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that took a while. I was going to say, you, yeah. could hear, you could hear a lot of, of, of effort and love went into putting that together. Again, it starts with the orchestration, not what you expect to hear. Mm-hmm. Let, let, let's uh, get a, a little bit of that before we try a few originals.
Fantastic. <laughs> when are they going to start making a Martin acoustic with a whammy bar? Because I get the that is the whammy bar. What? So you're using, you're just doing it that way without the actual yeah, bar itself. It's called, I call it the virtual whammy the, bar. It, it is a virtual whammy <laughs> yeah. bar. So so let's talk about some of the other stuff that you've recorded. I, and again, I know I yeah, only have I've, you for. Yeah, I have a few minutes. We, we have to. So I mentioned I want to talk about some of your originals, but I would be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit about the Wings album you did. Mm -hmm. You said Paul actually had suggested yeah. this. Well, gave him L.J. plays the Beatles, and he said, "Well, what about Wings?" You know, because it's a publisher. He kind of likes, he can't help likes people who record right. his tunes. So I was a huge Beatles fan growing up. Heartbroken at ten when the Beatles break up, but mm -hmm. hard nine years old, but heartbroken. And then when some of the the Beatles songs, some of the Wings songs came out, and, and you know everybody loves Admiral Halsey, Uncle mm -hmm. Hal, and and, Uncle um, Albert, yeah. and there's a handful of songs from the from uh, Jet and Live and Let Die, mm -hmm. and there's a whole bunch of so stuff that's great. But there were some early songs of his that when we first heard them, it's like you know it really needs the acid wash of of John mm -hmm. to offset Paul's sweetness. But your covers completely changed my perspective mm. on it. So, Silly Love Songs, Maybe I'm Amazed, mm. My Love, Listen to What the Man Said. I always thought of these as very light pop confection, mm -hmm. not serious music. Your covers of those reveal, we talked earlier about, you referenced revealing certain uh, emotional resonances mm -hmm. and nuances that may have gotten lost in in the orchestration, and you've made me relook these songs that I kind of ah that's fluff because they're really not they're beautiful well, melodies. You know, you look at any of the the great American songbook songs. You know, just putting aside the Anglo-American mm -hmm. aspect of it, but you look at Gershwin or Jerome Kern or Harold Arlen. None of these. Writers were singers. You know, I, there were a few. I mean, um, uh, you, you know, um, Hoagie Carmichael, for example. Uh -huh. um, but, but typically, you know, they wrote songs for other people to sing. The idea of the songwriter as the artist making the records was, was really a 60s phenomenon. I mean, it, the Beatles were really the first, one of the first bands, certainly the first band to achieve that level of success. Mm -hmm. um, who wrote their own material. And, and that was a battle they had to fight at the beginning with George Martin because, you know, they said, George Martin said, here's a song you're going to record. And they said, no. <laughs> and they did it begrudgingly and ended up, you know, how do you do it? Jerry and the Pacemakers had a big hit with it. It's the Mickey Most song. They said, we want to do our own songs. And we're writing songs that are good enough to do. You know, and, and you, when you go back in history and you realize that, you know, these composers were writing for other people We've become so um, enamored of the Beatles versions of the songs that mm -hmm. to be able to take them and and strip it down to the same kind of musical fabric as you would get with a Gershwin song or or a, an Arlen song or a Jerome Kern song, um, then becomes an illuminating experience because the the nature of the music of it. <laughs> Which is which is lovely. Yeah, it's lovely, and it's you know the what. It's it's and it's it's so, it's so nuanced and it's so musically clever without being obviously clever. But you have to kind of strip away the familiar, and Paul's voice is so familiar, and you've right. heard it so many times that it's easy to lose track of of what what the the underneath. Of that is the, what supports the, it. The only comparison I could think of, I was a huge Pretenders fan. Oh yeah, love the band, love Chrissy yeah. Hines, and they. She ultimately released an album. I think it was called Isle of View. Mm -hmm. That's her and a string quartet in front mm -hmm. of an audience. Right. A string quartet, and similarly, you discover. Wow, these aren't just you know headbanging rock and roll yeah, songs. They're great they're, songs. They're yeah. a beautiful right and mm -hmm. and. In in a number of ways, you forced me to re-look at a number of songs that I always kind of you know shrugged off, it, especially the wing songs. That mm -hmm. little that little stands you just played. Yeah. That's a lovely little melody, 
And it's too easy to dismiss it as, ah, it's just a pop song until you hear it in that context. But, you know, um, I Got Rhythm is just a pop song until you hear it sung by, you know, Tony Bennett or, or, or somebody. I mean, it's, these are vehicles for interpretation. And that, you know, and it's not like there aren't a million cover songs of Beatles records. You know, a lot of them have just kind of got lost over the years that, you, you know, you have to rediscover. It's not just um, Joe Cocker doing With a Little Help from My Friends, for example, which, right. which is, you know, one of those a iconic. seminal, yeah. right, exactly. Um, I mean, there's a lot of them, you know. You know, but it runs into that problem. If it's too exacting, why bother? And if it's so far afield, I mean, Joe Cocker made that his own. Right. But there are so many covers you hear and it's like, oh, I can't. Well, you know, the, the, it's a business. I mean, the fact is I that guess. you have an artist, you have a record company, you have an artist and repertoire and our person who says, uh -huh. okay, we have to put together a repertoire for this album. And, and it's just, it, how do you bring something fresh to it? Um, and it depends on the artist. It depends on the artistry involved. So speaking of artistry, let's talk about some of your uh, original songs in, in the last five or ten minutes we have. Yeah, I just have five and then I gotta, so, I gotta so hit the road. <laughs> I, I would, there's a number of questions I haven't even remotely gotten to. So let me ask you two quick questions before sure. we, we get to your, uh, some, some of my favorite stuff of yours. So you're in the business of being a professional musician. What do you do when a recent college grad comes to you and says, I'm thinking of a career in music, what, what sort of advice would you give to that person? I would say, don't think about it, do it. Really? <laughs> yeah. Despite all the changes and the challenges in Just the, be, in the field? Just be educated. Be aware of where the revenue streams are. Be aware of, of how difficult it is to make a living mm -hmm. as a musician. And be properly prepared for it. See, I think that what happens is you get a lot of people who base their musical education on emulating somebody else right without having the foundation to to build a career on you know there was a time when you could perhaps you know back in the 60s or the 50s you could hear somebody and say oh i can do that and you know be do your own version of johnny cash or or elvis or whatever but now you know the music business is so the, the real kind of money end of the business is so focused on a certain segment of, of audience in terms of, you know, basically kind of pre-teens and teens. And, you know, if you're a female artist and you're over the age of 20, then your, your chances of getting signed to a record deal diminish quite rapidly. Um, one of the reasons my daughter Elsie really focused on the songwriting side of it, because it's, if you make inroads as a songwriter, then you have more freedom as an artist. You know, it depends whether you want to be a pop star or when you, whether you want to be an artist. And that, I think the advice I would give is, what are your goals? Do you simply want to be up on stage with lights and, and, um, and groupies? And, you know, is it just the glamour of it that, that attracts you? Or is it a serious desire to make music and to make that your focus? And, and, you know, so I think it's important to set realistic goals. Um, and it is possible to make money as a musician. But, you know, if you join a band and you go out on the road, don't expect to, at least so, not straight away. So that leads me to a question I ask all my guests, which, which is simply, what do you know today that you wish you knew when you started, let's call it 25, 30 years ago? I, I think I, I wish that I had been better informed about the, the writing and the publishing side of it so that I could have started that earlier. But I did it when I did it, and that's, that's fine. So speaking of which, let, let's get one more uh, tune from you before you have to go out, which is what, what is your favorite original in terms of... Oh, that's like asking which one is my favorite kid. Which, okay. So, I, I won't ask you that, but I will say, what, what's your favorite, not your favorite song, what's your favorite original song to play? What do you have the most fun playing? Which is a different question. It's a, it is a different question, and um, and I do notice when I when I saw you at the cutting room, you look like you're having a ball playing. Oh yeah. Uh, let me let me do this one because it, it's a it's a tune called Catch, and it just it's I, I usually open the show with it because it just kicks everything into gear. Right.
fantastic. I have the greatest job in finance. <laughs> Larry, thank you so much for being Larry. Larry, Larry ah. where did that come from? <laughs> LJ, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Um, if you've Very enjoyed, welcome. terrific. If you've enjoyed this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch for any of the other 97 or so conversations we've had. Uh, be sure and check out all of LJ's music and books and everything else at lawrencejuber.com. Uh, you've been listening to Masters in Guitar on Bloomberg Radio. Look ahead. Imagine more. Gain insight for your industry with forward-thinking advice from the professionals at Cone Resnick. Is your business ready to break through? Find out more at coneresnick.com slash breakthrough. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.